Hi, it's Chris. Two items before we begin. First, don't forget to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It brightens your Sunday afternoon with backstories, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for Stephen Brill. In a world of fake news, can the legitimacy of online news sites be rated? You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about becoming a member of Chris Reback's Conversations? Conversation members get exclusive early access to select podcasts before wider release, like my recent live podcast. You also get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. In the face of jailing immigrant children, questions about capitalism amid tariffs and possible trade wars, and concerns about democracy itself as we reject Western allies and warmly welcome authoritarians and dictators, a lot of us are wondering not just who we are, but also how in the world did we get here? Stephen Brill feels he has an answer. You likely know, Brill is a serial ideas entrepreneur. He founded, among other ventures, American Lawyer and Court TV. He's taken on some of our biggest issues and institutions, law, journalism, healthcare, schools. Now he's at it again, and the topic is no less than the American decline. He's written it all down in Tailspin, the people and forces behind America's 50-year fall and those fighting to reverse it. Tailspin is a vital and complicated story that Brill simplifies like this. About five decades ago, the core values that make America great began to bring America down. The story's also complicated because, as you'll hear, Brill himself is a beneficiary of the very system that seems to have gone haywire, meritocracy. That well-meaning approach to success, where we all get judged by what we can do rather than from where we came, has been turned against itself. As the knowledge-based economy grew, those at the top have pulled up the ladders. We live, he argues, in a country of moats. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Stephen Brill. Stephen, thanks for joining. I appreciate your time. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. So just quickly on a, a career note, you, you're not really into anything small, are you? Uh, I mean, <laughs> you, you've taken on legal profession, journalism, schools, healthcare. now the decline of America itself. Well, I'm also fighting fake news with a new company called NewsGuard, but we can talk about that later. I have a question on that for later. <laughs> Actually, that's my bonus question for later. So folks will have to sign Good. up for the newsletter to, to get to that Great. one. But, but how about like... Knitting? Could, you know, is, is that something <laughs> next time? My wife has suggested that, yes. I, I'm, I'm sure she has. Well, it's part <laughs> of this, you, as you note in, uh, at the end of the book, this whole book was kind of her fault, wasn't it? If she hadn't uh, yeah, helped absolutely. put the idea in your head? You got it. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, we all try to blame things on uh, on our spouses, I guess. And again, and, and we'll get into the book, but obviously, I mean, your career, you've done so many different things. And as I thought about it, there's an aspect of it that I think people might appreciate. I certainly did. And in my view, we don't think about it enough. I mean, you've taken on these massive ventures, American Lawyer, Court TV, just a few of them, mm-hmm. but also some that you know may have done what they wanted to do in the immediate term, but didn't didn't last. They failed. No, you can say it. They, they, they failed. failed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, content failed. You got to try stuff. You got to try stuff and you learn from your mistakes. You don't make excuses. And I probably tried between big ventures and small ventures, probably a dozen and a half, and three or four of them didn't work. If I could do that when I got up to bat at Yankee Stadium, I'd be in good shape. Yeah, you'd be you'd be playing. you got to keep swinging. Yep, exactly right. Let's go to the book. Sure. Your thesis, uh, which, to sum it up, and you'll tell me, of course, if I got it wrong, uh, about five decades ago, the core values that make America great began to bring America down. What does that mean? It means that ever so slowly and in ways we couldn't see then, and I was able to see looking back, really just by watching the movie in slow motion, that a lot of things that we thought were advances and progress turned against us because we just, in essence, got too good at doing the things we do well, and we took them too far. For example, the First Amendment. That's the ultimate core American value. We love the First Amendment. I love the First Amendment. I've been in the business of the First Amendment my whole life. But beginning um, with a thesis written by a Harvard Law student who wanted to make a splash and then followed pretty quickly by lawyers working for Ralph Nader, we developed a theory that the First Amendment applies to corporations as well as to people. Now, some of your listeners might not like that, but the case that Ralph Nader brought in in 1976, most people liked, because what he did in 1976 was he took a case to the Supreme Court arguing that discount drug stores in uh, Virginia should have the right to advertise their discount prices. A law had been passed in Virginia by uh, the drugstore chains that uh, prohibited the advertising of prices of drugs. And the argument was that, that the public deserved to know that they could buy drugs you know, less expensively at these discount stores and that by not giving these drug stores the right to speak, in other words, to advertise their prices, yeah. they were depriving listeners of information that people need in a free marketplace and in a democracy to make decisions about how they want to govern themselves, in this case, how they want to decide you know, where to shop for drugs. And so the Supreme Court said that we shouldn't discriminate against uh, speakers based on whether they're people or corporations, because the real benefit of the First Amendment is for listeners. Your listeners have a right to hear me speak. So, yes, I enjoy a First Amendment right to speak to them, but one hopes that listeners... Uh, who are listening are benefiting from the conversation we're having. This was the radish argument. Right. And that's a perfectly good argument. We all like that argument until what that becomes, that concept of not discriminating based on whether you're a corporation or a person, that in essence became the Citizens United decision in 2010. So we expanded First Amendment rights in a way that, as Ralph Nader put it to me in my book, had you know a boomerang effect. Another example is, uh, you know, would be inventions in uh, financial and legal engineering that created an economy that was able to be more concerned 
with short-term profits based on increasing the price of a stock than with the long-term benefits of creating new assets and creating new jobs. And that's what really accelerated the trend that I saw over these 50 years that everybody has seen, which is um, there is much less income uh, mobility in the United States, and there is much more income inequality in the United States. The gap between the middle class and the rich has widened uh, steadily every year since the beginning of the 1970s, when in fact it had narrowed every year from 1928 to 1970. I want to get from you the the heart of it, or, or maybe the beginning of it, and the the shift towards meritocracy um, and right. how that began in the fifties. But but just to to continue on this point that you're making, because I I feel like somehow you've uh, jumped through the the line here and taken a look at at my notes, because I was continually struck by the ways that good intentions went haywire when taken to their extremes. And you, you just mentioned the you know three of the ones that I that I wrote down: Martin Radish, mm-hmm. who I guess is at uh, Northwestern. Uh, law right. school now he was at Harvard when he wrote uh, the piece that that you you know you outline in, in your book mm-hmm. about uh, listeners you know the First Amendment being not just about mm-hmm. speakers but about listeners um, the Ralph Nader pharmaceutical advertising Jensen Meckling the paper on um, mm-hmm. stock options and aligning incentives and we all hear about that business people you know business managers CEOs should have um, incentives aligned with uh, the shareholders, and what better way to do that than through stock as payment? All yeah, these we things- all we all agree with that, uh, you know. And and they did it under the banner of something called shareholder democracy. I own shares in a company. Shouldn't I be able to vote out the bosses if they don't improve the price of my shares? Who could be against that? Yeah, who could be against that? So how are we supposed to process new knowledge-based innovations? when they all seemingly, based on you know these examples, can be perverted in the long term? Well, I think the answer to that is we always traditionally have had a set of guardrails. And what I mean by that is that the highest achievers, the people who are really driven to achieve and who are smartest, whether it's in legal engineering or financial engineering or uh, you know technology, you name it, there are guardrails that a society sets up that says you can't achieve too much at the expense of everybody else, that there's a balance in any democracy and in any free market system between personal achievement and the common good. So if your personal achievement is that you've invented a a derivative called a mortgage-backed security, which happened in the 1970s, that's a really good thing because what that did at the beginning is it was a complicated financial instrument that most people might not understand, but it allowed a whole new set of investors to put money behind mortgages. As a result, mortgage interest rates went down and mortgages were available to much more of the middle class. That's a good thing. Then as the financial engineers and the lawyers got smarter, they invented increasingly complicated mortgage-backed securities and increasingly complicated derivatives, and they were basically uh, separating risk from consequences. So a banker who gave uh, someone a mortgage didn't care what the house was worth, didn't care about the person's ability to pay off the mortgage because the banker was going to sell off the mortgage to somebody else who was then going to sell it off to somebody else far removed from the decision to award the mortgage, and that produces the crash of 2008. So 
it was too much of a good thing. Just like in the case of the First Amendment, if you get to a point where corporations and individuals, rich individuals too, are able to donate as much money as they want in any which way that they want to the people running for federal office, what you have is a country that we have today which is totally dominated by money and politics. Nobody disputes that. Before I get into you know some of the arguments or questioning of it, it take me back to 1960s, I guess. Take me back to the growth of meritocracy. What is meritocracy? What is the goal of it? What was the goal of it? Why is it something good to have? And, and I guess ultimately, um, how did it get perverted? Well, meritocracy, I mean, I introduced the subject by introducing myself. In the 1960s, I was offered a scholarship to go to Yale College at a time when Yale had just decided that they were going to admit people much more on the merits than on the basis of how much money they had or the connections that they had. So people like me, lots and lots and lots of people like me, were suddenly into the elite Ivy League and other educational institutions, and that's a great thing. But the only perverse result was it created a more entrenched aristocracy because as people like me or my classmates were able to take advantage of Yale or Yale Law School or Harvard Law School because they were really smart and got admitted on the merits, they began to get hired by law firms and banks who were also engaged in the meritocracy revolution because they wanted to take advantage of all this smart new talent that was you know, suddenly coming out of um, elite institutions that didn't necessarily produce before this as much of that smart new you know, meritocratic uh, talent. And that made the law firms much smarter and much more powerful, made the banks much smarter and much more powerful. And they produced these knowledge workers in the meritocracy. They produced the kinds of legal engineering and uh, financial engineering that really turned the country away from what it had been. If you suddenly have lots and lots and lots of really smart lawyers, for example, in Washington, the number of lawyers in Washington actually tripled from 1973 to 1983. What were those knowledge workers doing? They were lobbying. They were working you know, to block regulations or to massage regulations in order to help uh, their clients, who typically you know, were those who could pay the most for this new surge of meritocratic uh, talent. And it produced an imbalance in the country where the guardrails were wiped away. You know, just to take a narrow example, a type of guardrail might be um, safety regulations in the workplace. So the first OSHA regulation, written in 1974, about a year after OSHA went into action and was created in the Nixon administration, the first OSHA regulation was 10 pages long and took less than a year to write, which is still arguably too long. The last OSHA regulation written in 2017 um, took 19 years to write and was 604 pages long. That's because it was lawyered to death by all these lawyers who were really smart and could be paid a lot of money because every year that uh, the chemical company that was involved in this regulation, every year that they delayed that regulation was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Are the problems that you describe, they're all based, or they're, most of them are based, on, as we established, on good intentions. And they seem mm -hmm. largely to be based on this 
um, foundation of good intention called meritocracy. And, and due process, for example. And due process. You know, there's nothing illegal about any of that lobbying I just described. In fact, lobbying is more protect, more explicitly protected by the First Amendment than is, uh, you know, corporate speech. So there's nothing illegal about it. it. It's just smart people getting paid to be really smart and really skillful, and the social consequences of that have fallen out of balance in the last 50 years. And so that, what you just said to me, is the scary part of your narrative, which is the system, you could argue, worked. It did exactly what yep. it was supposed to do, produce smart people who did smart things on behalf of uh, themselves and the and the, the clients that they worked for, and that that's exactly how our system is supposed to work. So now what? What I found, the hopeful part of this book, is in sort of going around and trying to get all the gory details about the problems. Uh, the people you would go to to do that would be you'd find some group that is working to fight the problem. So, for example, uh, for campaign finance reform, there are two nonprofits in Washington, one called Issue One and one called Open Secrets, which has this fabulous website that details all the conflicts of interest in lobbying and campaign contributions. So initially, I went to these people to get their information for my book. And then I realized that they were a big part of the story themselves, because despite, you know, everything that seems to be galloping in the opposite direction these days, they were in there and they were fighting and they were gathering ammunition. They were writing, uh, you know, blueprints for reform. Um, another example, there's there's an organization called uh, the Partnership for Public Service, which works on uh, civil service reform, works on encouraging better management in the bowels of all the government agencies. And I, uh, my initial reaction was, my God, these people are just so naive. I and mean, why are they even doing this? I mean, look at where we are today. And yet they, they get up in the morning and they go to work and do this stuff and nobody's listening to them. It, it sounds naive. But then my reaction, when I sort of looked at their work and realized how good it was, and I looked at their resumes and realized they had the kind of resumes that the, that the people on the other side in the meritocracy have, what I realized was that they are emblematic of uh, the resilience that this country is all about. And they are hatching the plans and doing the groundwork for when the country finally snaps back. And I think and I say at the end of the book, I think the country is going to snap back. I think that all people who, you know, the 46% who voted for President Trump because they were frustrated, you know, they didn't use this language, but they were frustrated by what the meritocracy had done to them. Uh, the, the advantages, that, you know, the technology advances of automation and global trade and the stock buybacks that the legal engineers engineered um, had basically hollowed out the middle-class economy in this country. So they're frustrated. Nobody was paying attention to them because we haven't been. We, did, we haven't done the kind of you know, job retraining programs that I document in the book that every other country does. We just left them out because the protected, the people who have the lobbyists, they don't lobby for job retraining programs. They lobby for tax breaks. So they were frustrated, and they sort of rejected the ultimate epitome of the meritocracy, who is Hillary Clinton. Wellesley and Yale Law School educated, always prepared, always does her homework, always works hard, 
seems a little detached and carefully calculating, but she's sort of the ultimate meritocrat. And they rejected her in favor of the opposite, the never prepared, born rich, never does his homework, bankrupted six times, vulgar, shoots from the hip. And they figured, well, let's let this guy try it. And I think they're going to, they are realizing that they let him try it, but that everything he promised them, he is not uh, delivering on. Those coal miners still don't have their jobs back. The tax code and the tax changes have hurt them. They are realizing and going to realize that they don't need protection from children seeking asylum at our border. They need protection from payday lenders. They need protection from job sites that are unsafe. They need protection from being outsourced out of their jobs, from not getting any job training, from a tax code that really hurts them, from cutbacks in food stamps, which the middle class now relies on. And if we get the right kind of leader, Democrat or Republican, who can communicate with these people and get them to understand that they have much more in common with the poor than they do with the protected class that President Trump is protecting still more, then I think we'll see change. And then all those groups that I wrote about, the campaign finance groups, the bipartisan policy center, all these groups that I say are resilient, I think they're going to carry the day. And the the metaphor that you write about is they're going to storm the moat. They're going to cross the moat and, yeah. and really – is that civil war? I mean I don't want to overstate no. things. But, but what, what is that? So what what is that? It's not violent civil war. It, it could be something akin to what we're seeing as I'm talking to you. The, the reaction, you know, across the board, totally bipartisan, to what we're doing to children at the border. There's so much outrage about that. And I think at a certain point, something will go viral when someone gets so frustrated by the fact that cutbacks in the staffing of Social Security have basically left people on hold for eight hours when they try to call to find out about their Social Security check. Well, when coal miners realize that they're not getting their jobs back and nobody has shown up to help them with retraining, I think that there are going to be multiple viral, I hope and think, nonviolent reactions and people are just going to say, yes, we're frustrated. Yes, we're not going to take it anymore, but we're not going to turn to someone who has scammed us. We're going to turn to you know the kind of political leaders who are prepared, who are calm, who can connect to them, and who are serious about turning around this kind of tailspin that we have. What strikes me, and maybe this is just part of who you are and, and it's inside of you, it, it's a, I mean, there's a real optimism out of what you're saying. So you've written this book that explains how the system itself worked, and it almost worked, it kind of worked against itself. It worked so well, and, this, and the, built on the meritocracy, it worked so well, the system, that almost like a disease that, you know, where the autoimmune... We ate ourselves. We, we ate ourselves. We cannibalized ourselves. Yes. We gorged on too much of a good thing, and whether it's due process or the First Amendment or, you know, even, you know, democracy, when we reform the system of selecting candidates in the name of democracy. We have all these primaries that have totally you know, polarized the two parties. I think that enough disgust is building that if we get the right leaders, if the right leaders emerge, and if we do better ourselves, if we get behind these groups and get active, and I say that not in the sense of you know, Democrats versus Republicans or even liberals versus conservatives, but it's really 
the protected against the unprotected. And the unprotected are those of us, 99% of us, who rely on you know, government to deliver on the kinds of basic common goods that that governments are supposed to deliver on, like, you know, bridges that don't collapse and water mains that don't break and tax systems that are fair and... Um, Simple things know, like that, yeah. You know, public education systems that actually work. We don't have that. We, we don't have that. But to close out, where you find that hope is in the system itself that ate itself and in the voters, I think, the Trump voters themselves, that they're going to realize that they got sold a bill of goods and the system itself is going to recapitalize itself or rejuvenate itself. And those two unexpected areas are where we find hope. Yes, that's right. That surprised me. How do you rationalize that? Well, it surprises me too, but you can either chalk it up to naive optimism or the sense that in the history of the country, we do tend to have uh, you know pendulums swing back and forth and typically at the time when we think it's the most hopeless the pendulum there there's some event some act some something or some multiple somethings that get people so angry that they demand change and when that happens politicians you know, at least for the moment, have to stop worrying about lobbyists and campaign contributions and have to start worrying about, you know, God, these people are really angry. I need to save my job. And again, I think we're seeing a little of that today with what's going on with these children at the border. It's hitting me that uh, you can take the kid out of Queens, but you can't take the Queens out <laughs> of the kid, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing the I'm hearing what you wrote about at the beginning that, you know, self pushing guy who got himself to Deerfield Academy. There has to be a core of optimism there. Stephen, thank you. Well, thank you. Happy to do it. That was my conversation with Stephen Brill. Want more from Steve? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, in a world of fake news, can the legitimacy of online news sites be rated? Plus, sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of his book, Tailspin. Also, something I keep forgetting to mention, my great thanks to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and I'm really grateful. So, if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to iTunes, and, if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. As always, of course, my parallel ask. If you don't like these conversations, well, thank you still for listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. My thanks to Stephen Brill for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.